You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement. The pastor God has put over your life or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Today we'll be reading from Exodus 39. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold, blue, and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. And they hammered out gold leaf and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and the scarlet yarns and into the fine twine linen and scale design. They made for the ephod attaching shoulder pieces joined to it at its two edges and the skillfully woven band on it was one piece with it and made like it of gold, blue, and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree and engraved like the engravings of a signet, according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the breastpiece in skilled work in the style of the ephod in gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. It was square. They made the breastpiece doubled, a span its length, and a span its breadth when doubled. And they set it in four rows of stones. A row of sardis, topaz, and carbuncle was the first row, and the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold filigree. There were 12 stones with with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. And they made it on the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And they made two settings of gold filigree and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And they put the two cords of gold and the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. They attached the two ends of the two cords to the two settings of filigree. Thus, they attached it to the front of the shoulder pieces to the ephod. Then they made two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on the inside edge next to the ephod. And they made two rings of gold and attached them to the lower front of the ephod. And they bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod and that the breastpiece should not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses. He also made the robe of the ephod woven all of blue, and the opening of the robe in it was like the opening of a garment, with a binding around the opening so that it may not tear. On the edge of the robe they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, and the turban of fine linen, and the caps of fine linen, and the linen undergarments of fine twine linen, and the sash of fine twine linen, and of blue and purple and scarlet yarns embroidered with needlework, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold, and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, Holy to the Lord. And they tied to it a cord of blue to fasten it on the turban above, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. 
Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent, and all of its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins, and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold, and its lamps with the lamps set, and all its utensils, and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars, its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords, its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments from Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together this morning. <clears throat> God, we thank you for these instructions that are being played out here in Exodus 39 that we get to read and observe and listen to. Help us to discern by your spirit what you would want us to know from this passage this morning and from the larger context of scripture. Jesus, thank you for being the great high priest that we can have access to God through right now that we don't have to depend on Aaron that we can right now uh, here in this home <clears throat> in many homes across Pittsburgh speak to you boldly and confidently so help us to walk away this morning being more confident in our salvation and more confident in our access to you not confident in ourselves but confident in you in Christ's name amen well, thank you for enduring with, I think, a few technical difficulties this morning. So I think we've had a couple uh, different um, breaks in the live stream. So thanks for bearing with us if you've continued to persevere through that. If you didn't catch who I was along the way and the in and out, my name is Andrew Hughes. I'm one of the elders here at Renaissance. And we're, again, glad to have you joining with us this morning uh, as we continue our series through Exodus uh, we're in the end of this series now. We'll be in Exodus 39 this morning. And then next week, I believe we'll finish the series on Exodus 40. So um, this has been a, a, a challenging at times book to get through because I know there's long names. Lori, thank you for reading through lots of stones and uh, different different uh, objects that maybe are unfamiliar familiar to us. And there's a lot of details in the book, book of Exodus. But I hope that as we've gone through Exodus, you've been able to see who the Lord is and who Jesus is, and the work of the Spirit, and all that this is pointing us to, and all that it points us back to from Eden. Well, recently, my family and I had the uh, opportunity to travel out west to the Grand Canyon. Some of you know that, but, um, uh, now, but I want you to imagine going on this trip with me. Imagine that if you went with me, and we flew all the way to Phoenix, Arizona, then uh, we rented a car, and we get in the car, and we drive four hours north to the south rim of the canyon. And, and all along the way, we're following the signs for the canyon. But then stop finally at the, the large entrance as you enter Grand Canyon uh, National Park. 
and you see me get out of the car and walk up to the large visitor center entrance sign and start taking pictures. You might think, well, that's great. Uh, you know, maybe we'll spend a few minutes here, but 30 minutes later, an hour later, I'm still there taking pictures of the sign, doing selfies of myself there, getting my, taking family photos around the sign. Kids are playing on it. We, we get out lunch and we sit down and eat around the sign. It's been two, three hours. And then you see me getting out and examining all the details of the sign, looking at every letter, Grand Canyon National Park. You'd say, Andrew, what are you doing? We've been here three, four hours. You've missed the point of what we're doing. You've missed the point of this trip. You're enamored with a sign and never got to the substance itself. That substance being the Grand Canyon itself. The sign is just there to point and direct us to something greater, something greater than the sign itself. And this is what we'll be seeing this morning as we consider the preparation for the priesthood within the tabernacle. This priesthood that we see in, in the preparation for it here in the priestly garments in chapter 39 is simply a signpost for something greater, something much better. And I'll ask you to consider here at the outset, whether you are a believer gathering with us, a member of this church, or whether you're a non-Christian or someone seeking or someone that just randomly found this live stream on Facebook this morning. I'm going to ask you this question. What are you missing about Jesus because you're enamored with the signs and instead of with the Savior to which they point? What are you missing? Because this is applicable to Christian and non-Christian. You might be missing the substance itself. You might be like me if I was at this large sign outside the Grand Canyon, missing the beauty of the canyon itself. Maybe that's an over-dependence on people who are, who are there to point you to Jesus instead of Jesus himself, and you're overly dependent on humans in your life. That could be a literal priestly type person in your life. Maybe it's rituals. Maybe God's commands instead of Love for the God behind them is what drives you. You're enamored with God's commands, do, 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 do. But you're missing the substance to which they point. Maybe knowledge and information about God, building up theological uh, critique and information in your head. But building knowledge about God that doesn't lead to increased love or obedience to God that isn't empowered by increased love for our Savior is like being enamored with a street sign. When the beauty of the Grand Canyon is right in front of you. So what we'll see this morning is that this preparation for the priests that they're doing, they're preparing here for this installation, for this priestly institution, that the preparation, this is the main point this morning, that the preparation for a human priest points to the true and better God-man priest, Jesus Christ. And God-man, not just a human but the God-man, 100% God, 100% Jesus, 100% divine, 100% man, Jesus. Well, we'll look at this through the lens of two points this morning. So if you're taking notes, you want to get these at the outset, feel free to write these down. We're going to look first at God's demand for holiness, and we're going to look at that through Exodus 39. And then we're going to jump to the New Testament and consider Hebrews 7 and look at Jesus' superior sacrifice. So it's just two Two big points this morning, or two thoughts 
two hooks to hang some thoughts on, God's demand for holiness and Jesus' superior sacrifice. Um, if you haven't been part of Renaissance or you missed a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Rob preached on Exodus 28 through 30, which again, if, if you've been reading through Exodus, there are all these commands and now we're seeing them implemented here. So Exodus 39 is sort of the implementation of the commands back from Exodus 28 through 30. And Pastor Rob preached a, a sermon um, that focused on the priesthood of believers. I would encourage you to listen to that because that goes ties right hand in hand with today. So, so that's sort of part one on this priestly office. And that this is sort of part two on that. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that idea of priesthood of believers at the end. But I do want to encourage you to listen to that. I think that would help inform some of these thoughts about what this means for our lives. But point number one, God's demand for holiness from Exodus 39. This chapter, Exodus 39, makes it clear that God demands holiness to access his presence. His, his presence demands this holiness. Additionally, there, we see that there must be a mediator. So there must be someone there to intercede, to have that access. So, so to have access, there needs to be holiness as all around it. And there must then be a person that's mediating there, an intercessor, who themselves must be enveloped in holiness from their garments themselves to their priestly line. It's specific people, specific things. You, there's intricate details that we just heard read. And so maybe you're still trying to figure out the Bible. You're, maybe you're someone here who has, hasn't read scripture a lot, or you thought, I've never really read through Exodus. And you're thinking, wow, why are all these long details about commands for garments and stones and colors and pillars and utensils here? Maybe you fell asleep six verses in as we were reading Exodus 39 this morning. You thought, this it sounds irrelevant. Well, uh, Abby Cunningham, who's sitting in this room, uh, in her sermon, the sermon prep team provides lots of great feedback and notes. So one of the things she said in her feedback is, God's commands are meant to reflect his character. So God's commands are meant to reflect his character. So again, if you just don't know much about scripture, haven't read through this before, you could at least assume every time you're reading God commanding something, even down to these details, there's something about it that's there to reflect his character. All right, and it, we don't have, we're not going to get bogged down in all those details, but as you think through the, these passages and read through it, you know that this can point this is pointing to God's character in some way. So that is to say, God's commands aren't just static statements or ends in of themselves. They are pointing to something outside of themselves, to the nature and character of God Himself. So there's all these commands, all these details, colors, stones, pillars, instruments that the priestly office would use. And it's pointing to something about God. And namely, the big thing that kind of rises to the top here is God's holiness. That God himself is set apart, holy, different, other. And this priest, this high priest in the priesthood must themselves be holy and set apart to the Lord. We see this in verse one here. It, they're entering, first of all, the holy place. Verse 1 again, they must wear holy garments. Uh, verse 30, there's a holy crown within an engraving that says, holy is the Lord. So we see this reiteration of holiness. Something that's set apart, different, distinct. We see that God is perfect. 
and he expects perfection in the details of these priestly elements. You might think, is God just being hard? He expects perfection. He expects holiness. He expects otherness. So we see that God has expectations for holiness, expectations for perfection, and he demands obedience. And, and interestingly, we see this reiteration uh, 10 times, I believe, in this chapter of the statement, as the Lord commanded Moses. They obeyed as the Lord commanded Moses. They did this as the Lord commanded Moses 10 times. So we see that the expectation was, for all the way back from chapter 28, 29 and 30, was that the expectation was they obey, that they do these things. God has a standard. God is holy. He's perfect. He demands obedience. So we see then that God has given these symbols. There's all these symbols, physical objects all around in this tabernacle. It's all physicality. And all of these symbols are there to point in some way to God's holiness, as well as the people's need for salvation. So it's pointing out two things. God is holy and the people have a need. There's a priest, again, whose garments reflect God's holiness. They reflect his majesty through the colors, through the stones that represent the tribe. So he's representing the people. The priest is there as a symbol of the people's need for help. Right? The priest exists because the people need help. But maybe you're new to the Bible and you're thinking, well, why do they need help, Andrew? Like, what's, what's wrong with these people? Well, the priest is there to particularly make a sacrifice because the people have a problem. So the people need help. That's why there must be some intercessor. That's what any mediator does or intercessor. Someone that comes between to help someone in need. And, they're there, and in this case, they're there to make a sacrifice because there's a problem. The existence of the priesthood shows the very their very problem, that they are falling short of God's commands. The fact that the priesthood exists shows the very problem, that they cannot keep God's commands. Their obedience, even the obedience that's mentioned 10 times here, was clearly not sufficient to atone for their sin. Their obedience did not put them in favor with God, even though they were doing according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. But that still did not put them in favor or atone for their sin. We know that's the case because if you've been part of any of the other sermons through this series, you've seen the continued disobedience of the people, the continued falling into sin. And then after this, if you continue to read throughout the Old Testament, they'll continue to disobey. So did something change here in, in, in chapter 39, make their obedience atone for past wrong? Is that, is that what's happening? That, hey, finally they're obeying, they're great, and they have made themselves right with God. Well, no, that, that's not what's happening. In fact, there, this blessing at the end of the chapter in verse 43, so chapter 39, verse 43, we see this blessing from Moses. It, a blessing in the Old Testament would have inherently involved something of a prayer, asking God to benefit someone, to you know, be merciful, to uh, may God's face shine upon you. Think of these blessings, their prayers, their requests or prayers for God's favor or essentially God's grace upon the people, which the fact that Moses is 
blessing them or praying on their behalf shows that their obedience itself is not earning his favor. Moses is not saying, good job, you've now earned something for your work. That's not how we should read this. Hey, great job, great job. Ten times they've done it, and Moses then, great job. And the, and the moral of the story is, they did a great job. And Moses said, you did a great job, and God's happy. That's not what the, chapter 39 is about. Moses is saying, you still need a Savior. Mm-hmm. We would have loved to have heard his exact prayer and blessing. We don't have that articulated here, but we understand through many other blessings and prayers of the Old Testament that this was the pattern and theme of asking for God's favor and grace upon the people. So we've seen then here in chapter 39, just at a high level, we're kind of zooming over it. We've seen that to have access to God, it must be done through a person who's set apart as holy to provide an atonement for their sin. That's the, that's the purpose of the priesthood. But I want to zoom out even further now. So we're down in uh, chapter 39 of Exodus in the Old Testament. I'm going to zoom out further and look at our second point. So we, we've seen that God demands holiness. That's why the priesthood exists. But how do we understand this passage in the larger context of all Scripture? And I'm going to look at that through Hebrews chapter 7 and look at Jesus' superior sacrifice. So how do we, we'll read that in a moment, but how, how do we zoom out and understand what is this pointing us to so that we don't, as we say, miss the forest for the trees? So in the book of Hebrews helps us do that in many places. Uh, all If you just read through the whole book of Hebrews, I think it helps uh, sort of, um, it's sort of a commentary on all of the Old Testament um, and very specifically the sacrificial system. That while the high priest in the Old Testament was there to mediate for the people and point to God's salvation, it was actually an insufficient institution. Inherently, it was insufficient. As the author of Hebrews says in chapter 7, it was weak and useless. That's a really strong words for something that we believe is is a beautiful part of our scriptures. But he says, at the end of the day, in comparison to what the real need was, it was weak. It was not useful. There's a better hope, the author of Hebrews says. There's a better covenant. These physical things in Exodus are shadows or signs, right? Or symbols. They're not the substance itself. They're shadows, signs, and symbols pointing to something else. I used the uh, illustration of the Grand Canyon at the beginning that if I was enamored with the sign and not the canyon itself, I'd be missing the point. Um, I'll use another even more mundane illustration. But uh, this uh, this week, Pastor Luke and his wife Hannah uh, loved on our family really well a couple times and brought us some meals. Uh, We moved recently, had a lot going on. I had some kiddos that were sick. And he, he comes over, drops some food off, and he dropped off a massive box of like, I don't know, 50 Chick, uh, Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets. Yeah. yeah, getting some amens. First amen here all morning came on Chick-fil-A. All right, so big box of Chick-fil-A nuggets. Now, if I pulled out that box and I dumped all the Chick-fil-A nuggets on the counter and I just smelled the box and I looked at the grease in the bottom, and I picked up the little pieces of chicken that fell, fall on the bottom that you always got to you gotta get those out, right? And I just, I just sniffed it and I looked at it and I stared at it. That'd be stupid, right? No, you're going to eat the chicken nuggets. They're the best nuggets in the world. I'm not going to 
hold the box that holds the nuggets. That's just, that's just carrying the nuggets to my mouth. I, mi- I would miss the substance. Th- this is all I'm saying is that this is what is happening in the Old Testament. There's pointing to something better. The author of Hebrews helps us see that if you follow the shadow forward, you'll find that Jesus is the true high priest, that Jesus is the better high priest. These are all words right from Hebrews. True, these aren't just from Tim Keller. Tim Keller says this a lot. I want to be clear. Hebrews says this. The author of Hebrews, not Tim Keller, says Jesus is the true high priest. He's the better high priest. He is the greater high priest. He is the final. That, that's my favorite. The final high priest. Not just true, better, and greater, but the final mm-hmm. high priest. But you might say, Andrew, but how? Okay, you're making the point. This is pointing to something better. How is he the better high priest? Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 7, 23 to 28. If, you're, if you don't have a Bible, it uh, should be on the screen that you're looking at. Um, if you do have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Um, in your own time, I encourage you, look at chapters 4, 5, 7, 8, 9, and 10, and you'll find a continued reiteration of these themes. We're just going to look at these few verses uh, in chapter 7 to help us interpret uh, Exodus 39. But all these, 4 through 10, is filled with these same things. But we're going to look here to see how the sacrifice that Jesus made as the high priest transforms access to God and helps us understand that to which Exodus 39 is pointing in the first place. So turn with me to Exodus, uh, sorry, Hebrews 7, or you can follow along on the screen. Hebrews 7, 23. The former priest, and I want you, as I'm reading this, just think about all that we've read in Exodus 39. The former priests were many in number, but they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, speaking of Jesus, he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, so based on that, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, holy we're hearing holiness here, this is, see the connections? Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He, Jesus, has no need like those high priests from the Old Testament to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all. Night is there is once for all time. Once for all time, complete, finished. When he offered up himself, that's a turn offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son jesus who has been made perfect forever there's a ton in here i want to highlight four ways here so we're looking at god's demand for holiness was point one point two was jesus superior sacrifice and i want to look at four ways jesus is superior so that we understand how this is better how Jesus is greater, how he's the final high priest. First of all, Jesus isn't dead. That's right. 
Jesus is a dead. The former priest, it says in verse 23, were prevented from continuing in their office, not because it was, a, you know, they could only serve two terms as a president, right? but because they died. At some point, they all died. They couldn't continue to mediate because they were dead. But Jesus is always available to mediate because he's alive. Do you, do you see? The resurrection matters every day. The resurrection is why we gather. We think of the cross of Christ as central, and it is. It is literally the crux in time. But without the resurrection, we have no hope of the cross meaning anything. The sacrifice is useless if Jesus doesn't rise, because it's just, it would be just as useless as a lamb that couldn't do anything. It, that lamb is a symbol. That's why it's important that Jesus is alive. He is never unavailable to save anyone who will call on his name. Jesus is never unavailable to save anyone who will call on his name. When he says, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, it's because he's always there. He never goes away. I'm sure we've all been let down by someone who wasn't available when you needed them because we're human and then we die. (laughs) at some point, right? We have an end to things. We can't be awake all the time. We can't be available all the time. We can't live all the time. We can't do everything for everyone. We're just going to let people down constantly. But Jesus is never unavailable to save you. If, If you are not trusting Jesus this morning, will you trust him today? If you're evaluating Jesus, he's available to save you. Unlike anything or anyone in any time of history, He is available. The resurrection of our high priest, Jesus, the eternal God, as it says, the eternal Savior, the unending Savior, is central to our faith. It's why we gather every week. Our God is not dead. He is unlike a normal human in this way. He's unlike any other priest who's ever lived. Secondly, our God, Jesus, is not dead. Secondly, he is sinless. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Jesus, it, like the, that's all just a, a bunch of adjectives to say he's perfect. He is sinless. He's unlike any other man or woman who's ever lived. And because of this, there's no need to sacrifice for himself. Jesus didn't need to make a sacrifice for himself. Look at verse 27. He has no need. Remember, why did the priesthood exist? Because the people had a need. But the priests themselves had a need as well. They were just as much sinners. And you would imagine living at the time you thought, well, I know, I know Aaron. He did some stupid stuff. Why is he the great? Why is he the high priest? He's the one that like threw, threw all our gold earrings and a fire and then blamed it on us instead of you know, they were like this doesn't make sense this guy needs help too so jesus doesn't need anyone to save him jesus has no need to sacrifice for himself the old testament priests were in need of a savior so there would have been a natural dilemma who is the mediator who's going to mediate for the mediators who's going to do that they they wouldn't have known So, first of all, Jesus is alive. Secondly, Jesus is sinless. Thirdly, third way that he he is a better, uh, a superior high priest. 
He made one sacrifice instead of many. Verse 27 again. He has no need like those high priests offer sacrifices daily. That's a lot of sacrificing daily. First for his own sins, right? So we just mentioned the, the the priests were themselves sinners. So they had to sacrifice for themselves and then for the people. And then for those of the people. So but he, since he did this once for all time when he offered up himself. So Jesus did something once that was done over and over and over. From the time of Exodus 39 onward, there would be many priests, right? I want you to think of Exodus 39 as a bookend. From this point, there'd be many priests, many offerings of animals, blood all over the place. In fact, we see that the continual sacrifices did nothing other than to remind the people of their sin over and over. Every time an animal's killed, it reminds them of their sin. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. It's like a big sign in front of you saying, hey, guess what? You messed up again. You messed up again. You messed up again. Way to go. You've got a problem. You need someone to take your place like this animal. Unfortunately, this animal can't do anything for you. The sacrifice constantly reminded them of the insufficiency of the whole process. The person doing it and the animal. But then we come to this other bookend. Jesus, where there's a single priest and a single offering completed for all time. And it's done. It ends. Jesus' fulfillment of these priestly roles and duties was not just a fulfillment in the sense that it pointed to him. It, it points to him, but not just in the sense that it points to him, but a, a, but a fulfillment in the sense that he actually completed something. Jesus, It didn't point to him and then he kept sacrificing as the final high priest, but he's continually sacrificing for us. He sacrificed once and was done. He has completed the final sacrifice as the great high priest. There's a completion in Jesus' work. The imagery used in Hebrews 10, you don't have to look there, but I encourage you to read it. There's imagery used in Hebrews 10 that says that the priest stood daily during the sacrifice and never rested daily and yearly from the task. If if you read through the tabernacle uh, architecture, there's no seat or chair for them. And so the author of Hebrews says they're standing daily, standing, working, 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 working. They never stop. Daily, yearly, stand, stand, stand. Then the author of Hebrews says this, yet Jesus, after his priestly sacrifice, sits down. That's straight from Hebrews 10. We could spend the whole time just on this idea. The the priest stands, stands, stands. There's no seat for them because it's an unending work. It's an eternally endless work. Jesus enters, does it one time, sits down at the right hand of the Father and says, I'm done. It's complete. It's finished. He rests. There's nothing left to do. It is finished. Remember those words? That's what Jesus means. It is finished. I'm going to sit down. Has that been you? Are you working, 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 working? daily you just want to sit down you feel like you just feel like i'm standing constantly there's no resting spiritually it's that feeling you get when you come home 
from a long day of work where I guess walk across the living room or down the stairs, wherever, if you're, if you're working from home, maybe this isn't as applicable anymore, but if you can imagine when you were not maybe working in your home and you come home, long day of work, long week, and you just sit down and you're like, I'm done. Or you work in the yard, I like yard work, physical labor, and you go, okay, finished, I'm done. That's, you sigh, you're relaxed. Jesus is done. He sits down. He's finished. I think we also all know that feeling of unceasing work, whether you're a Christian or an atheist, agnostic, evaluating Jesus this morning. I think we all know what it feels like to have this unceasing work where you're toiling and trying to fix things, change things, and change people, change yourself. You're worked up. You're stressed. You're trying to be a functional savior for yourself and everyone around you. And all you end up doing is being frustrated. And you can never sit down. Because there's just always another thing to do. It's just like a, it's an endless scroll to do. You get to the bottom and it just keeps going. Jesus' sacrifice was complete. When he was on the cross, he said, It is finished. He said, that's the end. That's the last one of all time. Fourthly, the fourth way that Jesus is a superior sacrifice here in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27 again, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus himself was the sacrifice. Unlike any other priest that ever had come before him, no other priest had given of themselves, literally. Jesus is both the priest and the lamb, as some of the scriptures we read earlier this morning. He is the priest and the sacrifice all in one. He gives of himself. The reason the animals were offered continually was due to the fact that they could never Take away sin. Hebrews 10 says, for it is impossible. Uh, the author of Hebrews is just very matter of fact. This didn't work. This is impossible. Right? There's, there, there's no like gray there. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. That's why Jesus had to give of himself. There was nothing else that could be introduced for the sacrifice. And there was no other person that could mediate, no other person that could intercede, no other sacrifice that could be given in the history of time or ever again. Introduce any other thing now as our savior or mediator or sacrifice is to defame the work of Christ, is to defame the work that Jesus has done. So what does this mean for us in final application here this morning? If you were an unbeliever, you might be thinking, Andrew, what ritual duties do I need to perform or have performed for me to gain God's favor? Or what person or priest or bishop or pope or pastor do I need to help me gain God's favor? Jesus says, there is none. It has been done. There's none. If you are a believer this morning, the New Testament says, 
interestingly, that we are all now set apart as a royal priesthood. Listen to 1 Peter 2.9. And this is, uh, this is why I would encourage you to go back to Rob's sermon from a few weeks ago. He, he spends a little more time with this idea of the priesthood of believers. But 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are chosen race, a royal priesthood. Church, you are a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. This is referred to, again, sometimes as the priesthood of all believers. Because we're united to the great high priest, Jesus, united to him, we too are now part of this priestly line. This means that we are all ministers or and servants of God's word. That's what a priest's role was. They were a minister. Those are words that are used in uh, chapter 39. They're servants of the people, ministers of the word. They mediate God's word to God's people. But what this means now is all believers are minister and ser- ministers and servants of God's word to each other. This levels the playing field. There, there is no dualistic distinction between sacred and secular. Jesus came and ended the priestly line. He has broken down every barrier as the great high priest so that all, that we all might have priestly access that we might all enter boldly into the Holy of Holies, that we don't have to enter with fear. We don't have to wait on a person going behind a curtain with bells and colors and stones and wonder, what's going to happen to me? Is that lamb going to do anything for me? We can enter boldly in prayer, as the author of Hebrews says, that we can ask boldly in the name of Jesus. Jesus came and took up residence on earth. Or as John 1 says, he literally tabernacled, put up a tent like the tabernacle, his body itself as the temple. He comes, he resides amongst us. His body is the temple that would be destroyed for us. That's why as he spoke to his disciples, he said, this temple is going to be destroyed. They're like, what are you talking about? He's like, I'm talking about myself. So that we as a church might now be the temple of the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit resides, where God this morning is present amongst us here. He is near. He is not afar in a building. He's not over there. He's here amongst us. He's there amongst you in your room or in the living room or wherever you're at with others. He is there with you, around you, in you. He's with us in this room. He is where where we are because of the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, the completed work of Christ, on which we have no other hope than to put our dependence in. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for completing what was done in just circular fashion.